Welcome to the Hustle or Bust podcast powered by Paver Art. Our mission is simple, to dive deep into the world of entrepreneurship, small business, and all the success, struggle, and challenges that need to be confronted in the pursuit of growth. We celebrate the entrepreneurial spirit, but perhaps most important, we want you to learn at least one idea that you can put into action immediately to make your investment in time worthwhile. Welcome to episode 43 of the Hustle or Bust podcast. This is the third consecutive episode in the world of sales, a critical function for any small business. What better way to cap that off than to talk to a multi-decade sales pro, Mark Fuss, the recently retired VP of Sales and Marketing for EP Henry Corporation, joins us and we talk about a number of areas. We hope you enjoy it and we hope you pick up a nugget or two. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to the Hustler Bus podcast, powered by Paver Art, where the old school meets the new school. My name's Mike Bull. He's Mark Alavito. And talk about old school that evolved into the new school. We've got a very special visitor here today. His name is Mark Fuss. And we've known Mark here at Paver Art for at least, at least 22 years that I'm aware of. Okay. And uh, welcome. Welcome. Nice Thank to, you. Nice Thank to you see you again. Here. Good to have you. Recently retired, as we yeah, understand. Yeah. Two months. Two months retired uh, from E.P. Henry. When he retired from E.P. Henry, he was VP of sales. And, I, you know, I, I can't think of a time in this business when you weren't there. You know what I mean? I mean, you were always. Almost 30 years. And when you weren't at E.P. Henry, even when you were doing your hiatus, you were still there. Meaning, you know, you'd come in, you'd visit, you were had your, you had your own business for a while. You know, I, I've been in the business so long, I have so many friends and so much passion for the business. Uh, remember, I also worked for Nicolot for yep. a big portion of the time I wasn't at E.P. Henry. So mm-hmm. I've been in the business for almost 30 years. Now, all of that was it the sales function? Sales and marketing, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're intertwined, yeah. right? You, they're you cousins. The marketing to create the sales. Well, I, I thought a, a good starting point would be, and again, this typically this podcast is not about paver art. Uh, you know, it's about entrepreneurial spirit. It's about you know uh, people who want to start their own business. What goes into that? You know the background. You know Mark and I have some. Oh well, there's. I'll, I'll put it to you this way: twenty plus years with Paver Art. That's you know the, the bumps and bruises I've had. That that gives me a little bit of experience. And he's had. He's got exactly the same thing, but he, but on several different financial planes. Um. When I first met you, when Paver Art first met you, the. Um, uh, you were probably the most vocal advocate of this company. Okay, and first of all, thank you. We really appreciated it back then because we were we were grabbing at straws. You know, hey, it's a great product. What do we do now? You know what I mean? So, um, but you were revolutionary at the time. You had something that many people were trying to do. They were trying to cut designs in. Right. Good and, point. And most of it wasn't very good. And certainly all of it was very time-consuming for the contractor. 
that's what I, and you know, that's, that's, I, I, I'm glad you segue to that because that's more or less the direction I wanted to go in to start. So were pavers. At the time, you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, the argument could be made that, you know, the 500 pound gorilla, you know, in, a, in the surrounding five state region was E.P. Henry because of the fact that, first of all, concrete pavers at the time were just really starting to kick off. Well, why don't we define it if we can, because the audience, some of them knows paver art in our industry. How would you define the industry that we all kind of play in? Is it outdoor living, hardscaping? Yeah, certainly it's all outdoor living because, you know, we're selling products, but what we're really selling is experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, people, they buy a patio for the experience. Say more, what is that? The barbecue? Well, a barbecue, you know, same thing. The experience is whatever it is. You know, I'm going to enjoy the outdoors with my family and or friends. Right. And, and, and that's really important, even for the contractors out there listening. You're not selling a patio. You're selling the experience. And that's what they're buying from you. Right. So you need to play up on those experiences mm -hmm. to sell them. On, on buying from you and, and the vision, what you're going to create for them, because that's what they have in their mind. They have some sort of vision. So, how do you, so you, you got a product called a concrete paver, and then those are two different worlds, a paver and the experience. How do you kind of bridge those two with a contractor that dirt under the nails? I mean, that's a different concept, I would think. Well, you know, it all starts with selling, right? Yeah. And, and what is selling? Selling is figuring out what the need is or where the pain is for the customer and then solving that with your product or service and then convincing them that you're the best person to do that job. So when, you, when you're in there talking to the homeowner or the commercial buyer, then it's important that you dig down to what's the real motivation my daughter's getting married and we want to have the wedding outside or we've got a graduation party. Typically, it's tied to some sort of event. Sure. Or, you know, we, we, we're big entertainers. So when you're talking to the customer, the prospective customer at that point, talk about that. Talk about how what you're going to build them is going to provide them with the experience that they're looking for. Sure. And, that, and that's really the pain or the need for the, for the customer. How did you get that information? How did you get that sales opportunity to the end user, the homeowner, back in the early days, back in 2000, 2001, 2003? Well, you know, we were kind of, patios up until that point were basically slabs of concrete. Mm -hmm. So they were they were eight by eight or ten by ten squares of concrete, and then you link them together depending upon how big you wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. um, pavers offered color and texture and pattern, something different. Certainly, the whole vision of outdoor living has changed over the years. It used to be particularly in seasonal environments. You got to enjoy your patio for three months out of the year, you know, for the summer or something sure. like that. Yeah. You do a barbecue. Now people, no matter where they live, whether it's California and Florida where there's no 
seasonal environment or here in the Northeast, you know, people really use their outdoor space a lot more than they used to. And that's that's changed over the years. And it's gotten bigger and better now with pavilions and gazebos and, you know, massive pool decks and stuff like that. How big is the industry? Is it, it's a billion plus. It's got to be. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, for sure. You know, it, it's really hard to say because you've got a couple huge producers in the business who have gobbled up different companies along the way and then a bunch of independent companies who have, you know, private sales figures and stuff like that. Sure. Um, but but it, it is a huge business and it's not just the paving stones, it's all the other stuff that drags behind it, whether it's walls or alternative materials, decking materials, sure, plant life, you know, now massive stereo systems. Oh, patio furniture. Patio Pizza furniture. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a huge, huge business. How, how does the distribution play out? It goes someone makes something, whether it's a paver. A barbecue, a pergola, and then how does it how does it go from there? What's the distribution model? Well, so there's there's several distribution models. Excuse me. In in many areas, and I, and I would say most areas of the country, it's a distributor. So it's a stone yard, typically somebody somebody because materials handling is a huge part of the business. Um, typically, they. The manufacturer sells the product to the distributor, who sells it to the contractor, who sells it to the homeowner. That's the typical chain. Right. Now, in some areas of the country, like Florida and, and other areas, uh, there's no distributors. The manufacturer sells direct to the contractor, mm -hmm. who goes to the homeowner. And then you can't overlook the big box side of the business where the manufacturer sells to a Home Depot or Lowe's, and then the consumer buys the product there. And most times without the contractor, right? The people that are buying at Home Depot are DIY people. Sure. The marketing concept, I thought that, uh, you know, one of the original partners in the firm was my brother, Ken. And he and I used to talk about this all the time. One of the things that we thought that was so innovative, at least early on, was the way EP went after all the markets. You had a way to, and if you would talk a little bit about that. I mean, getting the information to the homeowner is one thing, but driving the homeowner to the distributor, who's basically working with the contractors right. that you're training. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, you can also tie all this into MOTS. That that was so interesting and innovative to us at the time. It's now, now it's very common in the industry. Yeah. yeah. So, so we always looked at it like a three-legged stool. You have the distributor, you have the homeowner, and you have the contractor. And they're all really important to the sale. So you can't ignore any of them and you have to train them, help market them, do everything you can mm -hmm. to build the demand for the product at all levels. So, you know, from the consumer standpoint, 
we created a brand. We took a commodity product. It's just <coughs> a piece of concrete. Mm -hmm. And we created a brand around it. And, and at one point, E.P. Henry was the name in the South Jersey area because we spent a lot of money on marketing, on advertising and promotion to get the contractor aware of the product, to get the consumer all worked up that that's the brand they wanted. And, and the dealer then, you know, the dealer is the conduit. The dealer provides lo the logistics and carries the paper for the contractor. So, you know, they're all really important to the success of the sale. And, and we recognize that. And particularly with the contractor, we knew that we needed to train them. You know, it was a new business back when when I started with the company, mm -hmm. and and we knew that most of what we sold was going to be professionally installed, because the average homeowner can't do it. You know, the excavation and disposal alone are are huge takes them out of the, takes them out of the equation. Yeah. So we knew that you know we we needed the contractor, and we also knew that most of them. A, didn't know how to install the product early on, and B, for, for most of them, and this is still true, you know, the typical progression for our customers are they start with a lawnmower, and then they get a pickup truck, and then they're in business, and no one ever taught them how to sell, how to estimate, how to collect their money, how to, how to do all the functions uh, that are required to run a successful business. So mm -hmm. we took it upon ourselves to provide them with that training, knowing that if the job is done right, it sells another job. Mm -hmm. The reverse is also true, though. If somebody hacks up a patio, mm -hmm. then the neighbor sees that and says, I, you know, I'm not going to have pavers at my house. And it also reinforces the brand when it, and, when and, it goes and, well. And it created terrific brand loyalty for E.P. Henry because the contractors recognized that we were helping them. You know, we taught them not only installation skills, we brought in outside presenters and speakers to teach them how to manage the business side of the business, which is where most fail. Again, because they've not had the training. So, so there's no barriers to entry. I'm cutting lawns. I got. I'm a. I might be a 22 year old kid out of high school or whatever. I got a lawnmower. I got a pickup truck. And you're saying they evolve into the construction side, yeah. the hardscape. Yeah, I, I would say the typical scenarios. They start out in landscape, and then they segue into landscape and hardscape, and then many of them just abandon the landscape side of the business and become hardscapers because they figured out they can make more money doing it, and because pavers don't die. Right. That yeah, was Mick's route. That's the that's the route Mick took. Yeah. Mick being one of the guys that well, he was the one that came up with this idea for this business. No, so, well, you left E.P. Henry after a while, mm -hmm. but uh, you came back mm -hmm. uh, during that hiatus. The industry changed. We're here. We see this every day. You know, we were here during that whole. And we've been in business for almost 21 years. And what happened? What was the difference between when you left and when you came back in the market? 
Well, you know. And what and what's your idea of as to why that occurred? Certainly, there was more and more acceptance and awareness mm -hmm. of hardscape. You know, we spent a lot of time just explaining what hardscape was, and, and now that's somewhat of a ubiquitous term. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, as more patios and pool decks and driveways got installed, then the neighbor sees that, right? And, and the neighbor has to have it, and of course the neighbor has to have it bigger and better. Um, and and there, there were a lot more competitors in the business that helped drive the market. And competition typically makes you better. And, and so, you know, all those things, plus as we talked about, the whole emergence of outdoor living you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we weren't using that term. We, right. you know, we weren't. So, so you know, all those things combined, I think, you know, really propelled the industry. And, and the good news is I see it continuing. You yeah. know, there's still tons of patios, walkways, and driveways out there that aren't pavers. And just by comparison purposes, and this, this is really interesting, here in the United States, we sell about two, two and a half square feet per capita of paving mm. stones. Every man, woman, and child. In Canada, they sell 10. Mm. In Germany, they sell 20. Because they're using pad pavers for everything, all the streets and plazas. Because they figured out the utility aspects of the product that it you can unzip the pavement. All the utilities are subterranean. They unzip it, do whatever they need to do, and then reinstate the pavement. Mm -hmm. um, is that message in America? Is it just the utility of pavers has not been translated to the... Yeah, not quite. No, we're more about the, the prettiness, right? Mm -hmm. The beauty of the product. Yep. Um, and... and they're more about the utility of the product. But also, when you go over there, the whole backyard in Europe is totally different than the backyard here in right. America. They, they, they tend to have much smaller plots. And, mm -hmm. but, but, it, but it is pretty amazing when you go over there, and particularly when you're in the business, you know, you're focused on that. Right. You just look around and say, wow, everything. Well, it's the uh, I did the growth of the industry for me. It was just amazing. I mean, the fact that that we got into this at all. But it is the uh, I'm on the outsider in the group, so I can ask the uncomfortable question. It is a commodity product, and I'll tell you why I say that. You might have thirty brands of pavers in America, and I always use the example. Uh, there, there's a great social part, and you know it. You advise it, hardscape contractors of America. A group of contractors all across the country, what do they have, 10,000 now? Or? Oh, 20-something. 20 20,000. Yeah. So 20,000 contractors, and maybe once every two weeks you see the same post. Can someone tell me what paver this is? Right. And it's a very active group. They're all very opinionated. Yeah. You'll get 100 comments within a half hour, and there might be 20 different brands. Mm -hmm. And these are guys that touch it every They make their livelihood on touching and installing this stuff, yeah. and no one can distinguish what this great charcoal paver is, is it Unilock, Cambridge, E.P. Henry? I mean, it is a, that is the definition of a sea of commodities right there. Yeah, but, you know, there's a 
there's a lot to be learned about that. You know, one is that you can romance the stone, right? You, mm -hmm. you take this commodity product and you make it much bigger and better, at least in the minds of potential buyers. Um, I lost my train of thought. Well, the but, but, but also, here, here's the thing. We all use the same raw materials right. in the same molds on the same machines. Yep. So there's only about four or five, six different manufacturers in the machines, four or five, six different manufacturers in the molds. Cement is cement. There's basically three cement companies in the world now. So you're saying what I'm getting at. You're telling me the why of why yeah, it's the yeah. same commodities. So, so, so then the difference is how do you make yourself different, right? Bigger and better. How do you get them to prefer your brand, whether it's a product or, in the case of the contractors listening, how, how do they make their contracting business different and better than everyone else they're competing right. with? Right. So yeah. does it not come down to the human side of it then? <clears throat> Service, sales, oh, positioning. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you need... It starts with a great product, right? If you make a great product, or, or whether that's a product product, or you're an installer and you're creating a product, if you make a great product, everything else gets easy. Mm -hmm. and, and for a long time at E.P. Henry, and still today, the focus is on let's make a great product. And then, okay, we made a great product. How do we get the message to the potential customers that this is a great product, and here's why. Here's what's in it for you. Well, what I thought was always fascinating was the, the refinement of the marketing approach. I've got every catalog from E.P. Henry from 2001, okay? I keep all of that stuff. And if you look at the, if you look at the progression from that to today, there's just no comparison, absolutely no comparison. And it goes right to what you're saying. You're selling a brand that's trying to approach outdoor hospitality, outdoor living. Whereas before, it was almost geared to the contractor. You had a lot of specifications. You had all kinds mm -hmm. of interesting information for us, but the homeowner is going to look at a lot of that stuff. And again, I'm going back to the early aughts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but now... All the catalogs are just, they're gorgeous. I, they're, they, and they've got to be expensive. Oh, um, yeah, but, but it, it's... But a, you're selling the idea. It, you know, going full circle to a conversation we had about 15 minutes ago about selling outdoors. You know, for years we would take these pictures of installations devoid of humanity. So I, w I would call them the nuclear winter photo. <laughs> Gee, that's a beautiful patio. But where's the people? So we started focusing on getting people in the shots. Right. Because then the person looking at the picture can project themselves into that. And look, that's me enjoying my patio with my family right. or enjoying my pool deck or or what have you. Um, yeah, it, it, it's been fun to watch the whole catalog thing. And I and I can tell you, and I'll take credit for the early E.P. Henry catalog because 
I came from the Catalan business. Hmm. Before I came to E.P. Henley, I worked for McGraw-Hill. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the revelations I had there was that you can look a lot bigger and better than you really are just by paying attention to how you present yourself to your customers. And we had, in the early days, a it folded up like a roadmap. That was our catalog. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, geez, you know, let's do a catalog catalog. Let's do something, a full-size 8.5 by 11. And the first E.P. Henry catalog, I think, was 16 pages or something like that. And then it kind of morphed over the years, and we tried different things, and we found out that there was a certain formula that both the contractors and the homeowners and the distributors wanted to see in the catalog. They wanted the glamour shot, but they wanted to know, you know, what's the packaging information? What are the colors it comes in and stuff like that? Right. Um, so it's been fun to watch, and certainly they've gotten, you know, 100, 200 page catalogs. Now, you know, my screen's bigger. <laughs> but that, that will that will change, you know. I see digital catalogs. You know, I I I foresee that you'll be able to, you know, pick all your stuff from a screen. It's already started. TV screen at yeah. home. It's already right. started. You can buy a Ferrari online. Yeah. yeah. So why couldn't you buy paper? Sure. Online? You know the um, uh, that. That was always forefront, that getting the consumer convinced that this is the only product that they can focus in on. I mean, you had the, uh, you had the flower show. You know, the Philadelphia Flower Show, was a, uh, I thought that was a major deal. I mean, was that, was that a targeted thing? I mean, did, did you go after that for the oh, very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we got involved with the flower show. When we first started at the flower show, we were in the back of the show where they sold fudge and sheds and pictures <laughs> and yeah. stuff like that. On the other side of the curtain. And, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, and then, you know, I wanted to be out front with these big exhibits because, again, the whole outdoor living, use of paving stones in an environment and all that stuff. And so I went to Ed Lindeman was running the show. And I said, hey, Ed, uh, you know, what are the chances of E.P. Henry getting out on the main floor with all these other <clears throat> exhibitors? He said, Mark, I, you know, this is, this is a flower show. I don't want a concrete jungle. And I said, I'll tell you what, you know, you know Joe Palomino? I said, you know, we'll, we'll engage Joe to design a display that includes plenty of plant life along with the hardscape, and we'll make you proud. And, and he let us in, and we won best in show the first year. Awesome. But, but the, you know, for us, the reason we were so interested in the flower show is our target market was women 35 to 65. Mm-hmm. We knew that the woman typically was the, the at least the starting point. Typically, that's you know, is that only, still the case? That that is still the case. You know, mm-hmm. the the woman is typically the one say, "Hey, honey, we need a new patio or whatever." And I'm not trying to be sexist or anything like that. That's, sure, that's just no, no. kind of the way it works out. And then, 
of course, the man comes in when it's time to you know beat up the contractor right. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But but still, it, it tends to be a, a woman initiated process, and and we knew that you know thirty five to sixty five, they're homeowners, typically upper income levels, and those you know that was the people that was going to the flower show. You know, when you're marketing, you want to figure out who's your customer and what's the best way to get to them. So the cornerstone of the marketing effort would be that demographic. Yeah. Female, 35 yeah. to 65. Mm -hmm. Upper income. Upper income. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. Own their home. And, 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 you know, you can hone in on all this stuff. You start looking at your customers. You start profiling these, this is what my customer looks like. Well, how do I find more of these people? Or if you're aspiring to a different set, you know, I've been doing $20,000 patios. Now I want to get into the $250,000 projects. Right. Figure out how do you get to those people and what's the message? How do, how do you get, get them to want you? One of the, uh, you may not remember this, but I remember this distinctly. The we, one of the first meetings we had in your conference room in Woodbury, uh, it was with you and JC was not there, but it was basically you and Mike Anderson. Exactly. Um, um, uh, Mike's been a friend of Paver Art, too, for a long time. But during that meeting, you brought this, what you just said, you brought that up. Okay, this is where you guys should be going. We should be going after the 35 to 65 demographic. It might have been a little di different yeah. in the ages. Um, and at the time when the first items that we built, you know, we had a shark, we had a fleur-de-lis, you know, it's really basic stuff. You know, we had the seahorse stuff that would be attractive down at the shore. Okay. The Jersey shore, the Eastern shore. And Kenny and I and Mick came away from that meeting and we're like, you know, we're doing this wrong. This is absolutely wrong. We have to come up with a whole new series of designs that are going to appeal to females because they're the ones making the decision on design, not the men. And again, I'm not a sexist either, but that's just the way it is. And that's when we came up with the, with the Elements Collection. And the Elements Collection was a series of Mediterranean-infused designs that were just beautiful. And that's what, that, that took us to the next level in the residential market. And it's a good thing too, because not many people want to buy shark. So, you know, sharks are not <laughs> a big, that's not a big turn. Yeah, yeah, maybe a baby shark. But the, um, uh, but that was, that was very helpful back in the day. Uh, so thank you very much. And the, because um, uh, we didn't know, we were just learning, we were just learning this whole thing about, and I, you know, when I got into the business, I couldn't tell the difference between a a paver and a broom. Well, one of, one you know. of the early decisions a business has to make, whether you're selling stationary cars or pavers or yeah. designs, it's yeah. There's yeah. only so much energy and resources that you have. So the the distribution model that you talked about, which the three legged stool, you get your consumer, your distributor, the contractor, we would die because you guys were a bigger company. But if we tried to do that, we would die. So here's an example: if we spend, let's just say, a hundred dollars on marketing. 96% of the behavior that that generates is the direct end user and 4% or 2% might be the contractor. Right. So it tells you a little bit about the contractor world. In this world of outdoor living, 
the contractor is not responding to our product, right. the homeowner is. So we have a classic pull type strategy. Now the contractor, there could be 30 reasons why. They might be overwhelmed, they're doing what they're doing, they're going job to job, they're not mm-hmm. trying to sell more expansively, but if we spent 80% of our time trying to influence the contractor, we'd be out of business within three years because we've proven with significant investment, either they're not influenceable or we don't have the right message. So it's a, a business owner does need to decide where are you gonna put your best. But, but maybe paver art is the, the flourish that allows a contractor to separate from the other contractors. If you can right? convince them of that, true. Yeah, and, and I don't true. think it's just a matter of convincing them. I think it's just planting the seed. Right. Because, let's face it, a lot of the people that are buying from us have big egos. For sure. Right? Yep. And, and, and they want <clears throat> to have their project look different and better than their neighbors. Sure. And, and certainly, if you can even plant that seed, we can put your your monogram, your initial, a compass rose, something, the finishing touch to make that patio or driveway look different than the neighbors. You know, we had... Uh... Our friend Paver Pete, yeah. him and Ryan Ravelli came on, and and I learned a new statistic that con- the world of contracting, whether it's a kitchen remodeler or a hardscape installer, the number two most failed business in America. Oh, no surprise. Why is that? What's your take on that? You know, I go back to what I said. Most of them start with a lawnmower, and then they get a pickup truck, and they don't have the skills. <clears throat> Many are really good at the installation side. They're, they're good at right. digging the hole and putting the stone in. And they'll work 12 hours a day. Yeah. But, but they, don't, they don't know the business side of the business. Is that the difference maker? Uh, yeah. That's what distinguishes? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's either, the, you know, they don't understand the business side of the business, but more often than not, they don't charge enough. They're not recovering their overhead. Sure. And, and, and it's easy to look at the material component, and then the labor component, but what they forget in their bid is they got to recover Everything all else. the other things. The insurance, the taxes, the people, the disposables, the tools, all that stuff has to be accounted right. for and covered. And then your profit on top of that. So, you know, I, I, I'm very active, as you guys know, in these Facebook groups. I, I applaud, you know, the interest and the enthusiasm, but I would encourage contractors to really get a handle on the business side of the business. And, and over the years, over 30 years in the business, I have encountered thousands and thousands of contractors, literally. That's not, you know, hyperbole. And, and the, the really good ones, the top guys, all excel at the business side of the business. Yeah. But what per- that's the bell curve. That might be what oh, percentage yeah, of the total? That, that is a very 10%? small percentage. Right. The good news is that the information is out there. Right. You know, particularly now in this digital world in which we live, there's a YouTube video for everything. And every producer offers some sort of classes and training and stuff. Um, there's all sorts of ways of getting the information 
I would encourage the listeners here to get it from reputable sources. I see a lot of the blind leading the blind. Talk to, on, talk to on, them about them. On, what are some of the reputable sources? You know, on the installation side in the concrete world, you've got the NCMA, the National Concrete Masonry Association, which pretty much have done all the rules and regulations and standards for retaining wall installation. Mm -hmm. And then the ICPI, the Interlocking Concrete Pavement Institute, which is the paver side of the business. Now, in the past six months, those two organizations have combined. It's now the Masonry and Concrete Products Association, the MCPA. But even so, you know, they are, they're, they are to the industry what the AMA is to the doctors, right? So they're drawing upon experience of use of paving stones and segmental walls mm -hmm. across the world and, and tried and true methods. And, and there are standards. There's ASPM standards on the manufacturing stand side of the business that you know we have to make a product that meets certain criteria 8,000 psi compressive strength five percent water absorption plus or minus an eighth of an inch on the on the dimension so um and i i encourage contact so the information's out there it's 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 all out there and but there's i'm gonna make up i agree with you but again all you have to do is observe behavior if the facts are if you were to just do a academic exercise and look at feedback from a group of 20,000 people, mm -hmm. a big chunk will debate, is it even worth it? ICPI, right. all those things. I don't know if it's a third, but there's a fair degree of people that debate, is it worth my time to even do that? They've lost from step one, if they're debating that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, th there's a lot of people that are smarter than everyone. Right. Right? And it's a big I percentage. I don't, I don't need them. Right. But, but all this information is free. Yeah. It's correct, and it's free. And certainly there's other ways of skinning the, the cat, but, but these methods and procedures are tried and true millions of times. Millions of times. Well, it's a great subject. It's a, it's a great deep dive subject, too, because where, where EP drove the consumer to the distributor who drove the contractor to the end user, um, you know, you established the brand. I mean, it's just, it was a, it was a beautiful circular. It just, it just worked. It absolutely worked. I, but I do want to build on sales as a craft because you, uh, I'll toot your own horn, EP Henry did get acquired in a very nice deal. So every owner dreams of selling their business when they're ready to sell it for a decent price. Let's just say that happened with EP Henry. That happens in large part to the team that you built, the craft, the skill that you have, what you built as a brand. A lot of that credit goes to you, as well as the team that you were working with. Talk a little bit about the craft of building a sales career, and for you and the various roles that you had. What is it? How do you be successful at sales? Is it just are you born that way? Do you grow into well, it? Well, you know, I, there are people that are born salesmen, right? J just. They just have that in them. And, and really what it is, is they are viewed as trustworthy. We buy from people that we trust. I have always said if people 
like you and trust you, they will buy from you. The reverse is true. If they don't like you and they don't trust you, don't show up. You know, (laughs) there's, and and so you know that was always key to me to my success is I I was able to be a trusted advisor quickly. Um, But then beyond that, and and where most salespeople fall down, is they don't follow up. Mm -hmm. It's the follow-up and the follow-through that separates a good salesperson from a bad salesperson. And, And it's pretty simple. It's just you know, doing what you say you're going to do. And repeating. When you say you're going to do it. And, and, and I get very disappointed with contractors to broad brush the, the occupation. There are too many people out there that don't do that. And they give contracting a bad name. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as, as consumers, we're all like this. When we hire a contractor, we hold our breath. Are they going to call us back? Are they going to go out of business? Are they going to follow through? <laughs> Are they going to go out of business? Are they going to take my deposit money and run? There's too many stories like that. There's too many experiences like that. And it's very disappointing because it's very controllable. And, 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 you know, as a buyer, when I had salespeople call on me, it was the person that followed through, that did what they said they were going to do, when they said they were going to do it, is the person that I wanted to buy from. And, 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 and it's, it's pretty simple that way. And you become the best reference for that company, too. Yeah. And, and just, you know. Now, it says easy, but does hard. Because a lot of people are not in that mode. No, but it's, it's discipline, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like anything else in your life, you need the discipline. And I understand that everyone's busy. You know, being busy is never an excuse for not getting back to someone. Even if it's to say, hey, look, I'm snowed under. I'll get back to you, but it might be a day, a week, or whatever it is. Be honest with people. Don't make them chase you. Mm -hmm. Because the more they have to chase, the angrier they get, the less they trust you Mm -hmm. and like you. And the less likely they are to buy from you. Well, that's a great point. Yeah. The uh, we've yeah, I. There, yeah. there is no excuse, you know, barring catastrophe. There's no excuse for not getting back to someone within 24 hours, even if it's to text. Don't have the them. answer. Right. Even if it's to text them, say, "Hey, I got your message. I'm working on the answer," or "I've had some personal issue." Whatever it is. Just communicate. And we all want to be treated like that. Look, I, I would tell you, we've had issues with that at Paperwork because we're growing. Yeah. I can't tell you the number. There's way too many people that I emailed you two weeks ago. We have issues with that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's intent. I think it's just we're missing stuff now. But you're, I couldn't agree with you more. The easiest thing in the world is to be responsive, even if it's not an exact answer. Right. Um, but a lot of companies struggle with it. A lot of people struggle oh, with look, it. Oh, it, it, it's across the, the world. But, you know, what makes the great from the good yep. is, it's that is issue. the details, the attention to detail. Yeah, what, what I've done, knowing that this issue exists, because I couldn't agree with you more, it's important. 
my last email that goes out to 3,000 people and our post, I'm putting my cell phone on. Like, if you ever feel like you're not, text me. And then at least I know. So that that is a big thing. I think you missed one, which I'll, I'll toot your own mm-hmm. horn. You've got a generosity of spirit that I've always said from day one. A- anytime you're in our shop or you're dealing with me and you, you want to talk to so-and-so, and within five minutes you're connecting a text with so-and-so, You've done that a number of times. So you're a problem solver and a connector. You're very generous with your network, and you happen to know a lot of people. And you put that into play. And it's not like you're doing it expecting something in return. You do no, it because no, it's no. the right thing to do. Look, friends help friends. Right. And, and, and if I can help someone, it makes me feel good. Right. You know, I, I feel good You know, even now in my retirement. I get calls every week about, hey, can you help me with this? Do you know this person? Whatever. I'm happy to help them because you're helping more than one person. Right. You know, you're helping the person that's asking you for the help, but also the person they're trying to connect with, if you believe in whatever product or service they're trying to sell them, you're going to help them too. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the, the, the industry is fun. It's been very good to me and my family. Um, I have some terrific relationships. You know, Mike, you and I go back a long time. 22 years. And, and, and I value those relationships. And I, and I would tell you, you know, I appreciate the accolades, Mark, but, but I would also tell you that everything that we accomplished at E.P. Henry and Nickelock and Snap Edge and any other place I've worked has always been a team thing. Mm-hmm. And I have always said the thing that I did best as a manager is I hired good people. I knew the type of person that I wanted. They were all different, but they were all the same. Meaning that I knew that somebody was going to buy into my program and do the basic blocking and tackling, returning phone calls, following through, stuff like that. Where does pedigree fall in that list of requirements? Where's what? Pedigree. Well, where they went to school, oh, experience, no, resume. No, yeah, I mean, does it help? Yeah, surely. But that wasn't the be-all to end-all. Right. You just know. That's you know, okay. You just know. Your tummy tells you. And I would tell you that I've had some stinkers. We all have. But but I, I would say that my batting average is pretty darn high. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, just do it again. Just. Well, it's, it's actually one of the questions I had on the list, and uh, I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to get to it. But what, what kind of qualities do you look for when you're doing the initial interview? But by the way, sidebar, we just got finished doing, I got pissed one day, and I said, we're going in there, we're going to talk about this right now. We've got to talk about this right now. And this is the incessant interview process that uh, not just professionals now, but even folks that are just interviewing for jobs that are not necessarily professionally based, you know, five interviews to get a goddamn job. Give me a break here with that. What is that all about? How, anyway, but what, what are you looking for when, in the past, what were you looking for when you were trying to hire someone? Uh, what kind of qualities did you think were important in, uh, in the, the first thing was, for me personally, do I trust and like this person? 
So, so within, within five minutes, I knew whether they were going to make it to the next round, whatever that, that might be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, would they follow up? Are they enthusiastic? Are they going to drink the Kool-Aid? And, and can they follow direction? Are, are they going to get in lockstep with the rest of the team, or are they going to be a lone ranger? Yeah, there, there are people that... Mavericks, uh, Mavericks. Yeah, you got a program, yeah. but I'm going to do my own. Yeah, thing. the Mavericks. That, that yeah. was, you know, I'm always interested in how can we do things different and better, <laughs> if you've got suggestions. But pretty much, if, if here's the program, I, I need you to get, get in line with the program. So. <laughs> okay. But, but I, but That's I a pretty good you, assessment. But I would the, tell uh, you, Mike, you know, when I look back on my career and some of the industry heavy hitters that came through the hallowed halls of E.P. Henry, I'm very proud. You know, guys like Anderson and Dorenzo, sure. and Kevin Early, Kakaye, and Hipser, and I could, I could go on and on. John mm -hmm. Bowman, Kevin Minton, Jeremy George. Lots and lots and lots of people that are still contributing in a big way to the industry. Sure. And yeah. if I forgot you, I didn't forget you. Yeah. The, uh, I, had, I have to laugh. Our interview process here, so we, we tap, we try to tap the population when we can, you know, the addiction community and the penal community, okay? And... I'll never forget. <laughs> we had one guy. He just got out. He, I think he just got out of uh, prison like two months earlier, and he's sitting in my office and Mark <laughs> and I asked the question. Easily the dumbest damn question I think I've ever asked anybody in an interview. But I thought it was important at the time. How well do you take direction? And then, then when you mentioned it, and the guy looked at me and said. I've been in jail for five years. How well do you think I take that direction? And we—I'll never forget that. Pretty good answer. Yeah, that was a, that was a, it was a great answer, and he got the job. By the way, he got the job. He's still working. No, no, he, he, unfortunately, no. But um, anyway, that was a pretty good assessment. Uh, that the uh, uh, you know when you're uh, when you're hiring someone and you're you're putting them through that process, and of course who we're hiring here versus who you're hiring for the sales department. It's a different thing. Mm -hmm. but uh, um, uh, So how do you go through the career that you have, multiple companies, and you did a stint on your own with a consultant, mm -hmm. right, helping business owners? Mm -hmm. How do you go through that, all the different phases, and then what does retirement look like? Are you going to be active? I mean, you mentioned that a lot of people are calling you. Yeah. How do you just shut it off like a light? Well, I've always wondered that. You, you can't totally shut it off when you've been doing something for so long and when so many of your friends and acquaintances are still in the business. Mm -hmm. And you're probably responsible for starting a lot of those relationships, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, so I've, I've been doing a lot of honeydew stuff, as you would imagine. Yep. Projects around the house that I've been looking at, saying I need to get to, I've been getting to them. I'm trying to smell the roses more. Mm-hmm. Trying to, you know, I'm out on my motorcycle more than I've ever been, and just, you know, if I want to do something, I do it. Um, I do have some consulting work, I would tell you, mm -hmm. that some people have reached out to me and 
have asked for my help on certain Good. projects, and, I, and that will continue. I like doing that. So um, I'm not totally shut off. You are. Yeah, I'm, and and I still want to contribute. My wife is younger and still has a very active career, so. I, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to totally stop and sit home and do Wordle and stuff like sure. that. Sure. <laughs> well, you don't look like you should be retired, no, <laughs> which is, you, you really don't. So, um, uh, When you mentor younger people and they, they start, yeah. they're early on in their career, what are you talking to them about? Um, you know, having goals. Mm-hmm. It, it, it all starts with having goals, goals for the day, the week, the month. Where do you want to be in five years? Mm -hmm. And then how do you get there, right? And it's about um, <clears throat> being accountable and responsible, showing up, doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it, and have fun. You know, you, you got to like what you do. Right. You spend more time working than you do anything else in your life other than sleeping. And you really can't count that, right? Mm -hmm. So, so really, you gotta have fun with it. And we're gonna have problems. We're we're gonna have challenges. We're gonna have problems. Keep your cool. And, and a and a big motto of mine is: you've never had a problem in your whole life that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Whether you worked it out, someone worked it out for you or whether it worked itself out in your whole life, not one problem other than death, you know, can you not solve? So, mm -hmm. so you know, keep cool, maintain, maintain cool, and figure out how to make it right. So. Mm -hmm. Great place to wrap it up. What do you think? Man, it's, yeah, I think it's, you know, we deal with this all the time. Great I mean, grind, uh, hustle, repeat. Yeah, it's right? one of the things with business ownership we talk about is a lot of this stuff can be stressful. It could be anxiety-driven. There's a lot of mental health problems that people are just now starting to talk about. Um, but I agree with you. It, what a tragedy for people to go through a career, spend 40 to 60 hours a week, yeah. spend more time with their coworkers than their family, mm -hmm. and, and to be miserable with it. Yeah. What, what a crying shame that is, and way too many people do it. You, you can change it. Right, and, and isn't it attitude driven when you wake up in the morning? Yeah, on how you gonna oh, approach yeah, the day? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I am more than half full mm -hmm. all, all the time, because I'm thankful to be alive, thankful to have the things I have, my health, mm -hmm. all that other stuff. Um, and life goes really fast. <laughs> you, you know, I'm, I'm retired now. It, it's hard to imagine that I've got 50 years of work behind me. Yeah. That's 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 a big number. Mm -hmm. And it goes really fast. It does. Here's the other thing. Save your money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because at some point you're going to want to retire and you can't live off the government alone. So you you got to save. Very true. Money. Don't you don't have to buy a new truck every 6 months. I'm impressed with the fact that he remembered grit, grind, hustle. Real estate right staring at it. It's, it's right here. It's right here. Um, don't be that impressed. Oh, my God. I was, <laughs> how did I not? Wait a minute. How did I not see away the that? Holy moly. Well, well, thank you very much for coming today. My pleasure. That was, uh, my friend. 
it's as 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 are you uh, for us. And um, it was a great podcast. Thank you very much. I'm hopeful that we're helpful to the listeners. Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I think there's a lot of really juicy nuggets in there that were definitely helpful to the people that were listening today. So, good job. Thank you.